The Truth News Network. A sitting president admits his actions are unconstitutional, but says, while it's being litigated, we're going to go ahead and do it anyway. This is the man sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution. It's time for some pushback. And that starts with the truth. TNN, the Truth News Network, spells it out. And with today's Chalk Talk, Dan Newman. How do you spell truth? T-R-U-T-H-R. TNN Live. Either way, that's the way you get it. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Friday. We're rounding up the week before Christmas, and we're doing it together. And I'm glad you choose to join us today and, of course, every day. It's always great to have you along. This whole journey is about us together. It's not about just me. It's not about just my opinions and thoughts uh, or what I think about things. Feel free to weigh in anytime. Toll-free one 877 truth one 378 7884 Most of the time in Washington, D.C., when we get to the last month or two of the year, seems like things slow down a bit up there, but not this year. Oh, my goodness. Even though Congress is ending its session today, both the House and the Senate, they're headed home for the holidays. Um, they've been really, really busy trying to get a bunch of stuff done. And thankfully, they didn't get done one of the big things that have a lot of Americans, most Americans, scared. It was Joe Biden's Build Back Better bill that actually every day when another layer of the onion of it is peeled away, we find out just how egregious, how expensive, and how ridiculous this bill is. Proposed as is, it's the biggest spending bill in United States history. And less than 20% of the bill actually does specific things that this government is authorized to do. It's full of pork. It's full of paybacks for supporters and uh, campaign contributions. And it's full of far-left ideology. I got to say a thank you so far to Senator West Virginia, Joe Biden, and Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, both Democrats. They have stood up against this and said, we're not just voting for a bill because it's put out by a Democratic legislature and a Democratic president. We're only going to vote for things that are good for the American people, and this is not. We can't afford it in the first place, folks. Do you understand how we get money as a federal government to spend on things that our Congress wants to spend on? There are two ways. Number one, money we send them, tax revenue. That's the big way. But the other way is to borrow money. To borrow money. And this Congress does it left and right willy-nilly And they don't call it borrowing. They don't call it wasteful spending. They don't even call it spending. They call it investing. We're going to invest in the American people. Let me give you an economic lesson. If you don't know this already, you don't borrow money to invest. You invest what you have, not what you go borrow to invest. That's just borrow and spend. That's all that is. 
and there are two very different things. They're not the same. You can't say that truthfully. But then again, we're talking about the United States Congress, right? We don't get a lot of truth from there, sadly. We don't get a lot of truth in politics today. So we have a lot in store for today. Um, We're actually going to listen to three testimonies before Senate committees uh, in judiciary hearings. All confirmation hearings for any federal position come through the United States Senate have to be confirmed there. And uh, this president has nominated some of the most far left-wing people that I've ever seen be nominated by any president for various positions, quite a few in the uh, judiciary at the um, district, the appellate level, not anything for the U.S. Supreme Court, thankfully. We have a full court right now. But um, we're going to hear some really crazy things in these hearings. I just don't understand how these people do what they do and, um, and expect the American people to just buy off on it. It's absolutely insane. You're going to hear Senator John Kennedy about one of them. And uh, Ted Cruz makes a great story, a great case for voter ID with five people that appeared before his Senate Judiciary Committee. Got a whole lot more, too. COVID land is ablaze, folks. The CDC, the White House, the FDA, they are all going nuts over the Omicron Omicron variant. The CDC warns there will be as many as 1.3 million new COVID cases over the week of Christmas. 1.3 million, and a 73% increase in COVID deaths by early January. The Omicron COVID-19 variant has been sequenced 241 times in 37 states, including Washington, D.C., as the variant continues to spread nationwide. The CDC reported Tuesday of this week the variant now accounts for 3% of sequenced of cases And that's what that is, folks. The sequence is the actual strain of a virus that is considered to be COVID-19, the sequences of it. And every one of these strains have different sequences. That's a seven-fold increase from last week. It's feared that a tidal wave of Omicron is headed for U.S. shores, the U.K. recording its biggest one-day case total ever, Yesterday, 78,610 with 10,000 of those confirmed as Omicron. One of the largest outbreaks in the U.S. of the variant, the Omicron, is believed to have occurred at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Almost 930 cases over the past week are believed to be of the Omicron variant. All of the confirmed Omicron cases in the Cornell University are among people who are fully vaccinated. And some of them are in people who've also had boosters. Now, what does that mean, folks? The number is 930. 930 cases confirmed of the Omicron variant at Cornell. All of those cases, folks, are vaccinated Americans. 
double vaxxed, fully vaccinated. Some have even gotten boosters. So, Omicron cases in the U.S. increased 46% over the past two weeks. Deaths are up 40%. We've now eclipsed 800,000 total deaths, 50 million total cases. Those two earmarks were passed earlier in the week. Across the pond in the U.K., cases continue to grow, though deaths caused by the virus have actually decreased over the past two weeks. A recent South African study finds that Omicron spread faster than the other virus variants, but is 20% less likely to cause hospitalization. Uh, this, this is, this is, I want to say it's, it's crazy. It is, folks. Who knows what to believe anymore? Who knows what to believe? All of the enlightened ones up in the Northeast. You know, you started about um, maybe Delaware. Of course, Joe Biden's from there, so we can include his state. And you go up northeast of there through uh, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire. A bunch of um, elitist educational types. You know what I'm talking about. These are the enlightened ones. And they're better than pretty much everything and everybody. So it's a shock when we find out, at least a shock to them, that New Jersey and New York are now seeing the highest spread of the Omicron variant in the U.S. In some areas of the country, the estimates of Omicron are even higher, including New York, New Jersey, where the CDC projects that Omicron could represent about 13% of all cases. Meanwhile, the Delta variant, it's still in full gear, folks. In fact, the majority of the nation, the majority of the COVID cases across the nation come from the Delta variant. About 90% of all COVID cases. Rochelle Walensky, who is the CDC director, said this, We have the tools to fight this virus, including Omicron, We're in a very different, stronger place than we were a year ago. There's no need to be into lockdown. Meanwhile, officials in South Africa say the hospitalizations due to the variant, which the Omicron, which was first discovered in the country, are very low. According to scientific studies, this virus is spreading quicker than in previous waves, but the rates of hospitalizations and deaths remain relatively low. Now, that's from South Africa's Ministry of Health. Some European countries like France, United Kingdom, have initiated more restrictions in recent days over the emergence of this Omicron variant. At least one death has been reported and confirmed in the UK. There was a slide presentation that was shown by the White House COVID response team on the 15th, two days ago, showed that the CDC reported about 201,000 new cases of COVID on one day, December 13th. It also reported roughly a 7% increase in hospitalizations from the previous week. Some health health experts have stated that Omicron appears to be more transmissible than Delta, saying it will likely become the dominant strain around the world. I just don't get all of these off-the-cuff warnings about this. 
I, I, I just don't get it. Because you hear so many things, other things, and other people out there that question this very thing. Yesterday is an example. On the Brian Kilmeade show, Fox News Radio, they have a news medical contributor and a Johns Hopkins School of Medicine professor, Dr. Marty McCary. He said, there is today a pandemic of lunacy over the Omicron variant. He called it Oma-cold because it's a mild variant. McCary argued you can find a virus particle in the nose of some fraction of Americans and will be able to forever. We can't go hunting for a problem that is very mild or asymptomatic as an illness. He said, right now what we're seeing is this massive new wave of fear that's fueling our second pandemic after COVID-19, which is, his term, a pandemic of lunacy. If you look at the epidemiological data, the epicenter is now way down from Omicron. The hospitals have some hospitalizations, but not many, and they're short stays. They average two and a half days instead of eight days. But a study just came out of the University of Hong Kong saying that Omicron does not invade the lung tissue that's deep in the respiratory tract. It stays superficial in the nose and the bronchus. So that's why we're seeing a common cold-like illness. This new scientific data from the lab explains the epidemiological data and the bedside observation of doctors that this is far more mild. The pieces all fit together now. And that's why he's calling it, Dr. McCary, I'm a cold. He added one more thing. We got to reduce testing in low-risk situations. If you test everyone in the U.S., you'll find a virus particle in the nose of some fraction of every American. That will happen forever. Now, you can continue to do universal testing, like a test of universities, continue to sample people, bring them in, and if they test positive, put them in jail or causes meningitis. But if you do that with meningitis, which is a bacteria that causes a serious disease, you're going to find it living in the nose of 10% of the entire U.S. population. So we can't go hunting for a problem that is a very mild or asymptomatic illness. He also said you can recast any respiratory virus as a potential bubonic plague that's going to destroy the whole country. It's just how you present the statistics. It's just how you present the statistics. You can make numbers look, anybody that's got half a brain can make statistics and make numbers look like anything they want them to look like. A hospital in Virginia has gotten popped. You remember the story we told you about the elderly man in Chicago just a few weeks ago at the end of uh, November? He was in the hospital in Chicago with a very serious case of COVID-19. And he's an Asian man. His daughter came in from overseas to check on her dad. He was in intensive care, wasn't doing good at all. And she got to the hospital, and they actually called her in and said, 
your dad's going to die. We've given up hope. We're just watching and waiting for that to happen. So she got desperate, as you would do if it was your dad in these circumstances. So they'd done everything. I mean, they'd done remdesivir. They had done all of the medicines that are in every hospital's protocol across the U.S. for treating COVID-19. None of it was working. He'd been on a ventilator for several weeks. So she wanted to change his medication. She wanted the hospital to give him ivermectin. Of course, they told her, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. Ivermectin is not approved by the FDA to use in the cases of COVID-19. That's not in our protocol. So she demanded that they do that. They said, absolutely not. She even went to the CEO of the hospital. Well, she got a lawyer and filed an emergency appeal to a district court in Chicago and explain all the circumstances to the judge. And the judge informed, issued an order for the hospital to allow him to receive ivermectin. Well, it goes back to the hospital. They said, we're going to reject it, Your Honor, because we don't have a doctor on our staff that will give ivermectin to a patient. And so the judge said, well, what about another doctor coming in? And they said, yeah, we'd do that. So he issued an order saying that. Well, the doctor, this girl had found that they wanted to administer ivermectin to her dad. He didn't have admitting privileges at that hospital, so they rejected it, went back to court again. The judge slapped the hospital on the wrist and said, get out of the way and let this doctor come in and do it, which they did. The man had been in intensive care for two weeks. 72 hours after they began ivermectin, he walked out of the hospital. A similar situation happening in Virginia. A spokesperson for Virginia's Fake Hospital said on Wednesday it would like to correct the misinformation regarding the family who disagreed with the clinical course of treatment recommended by our physicians for their family member. They said, as outlined in the court documents, a patient's family filed a petition seeking to compel our hospital to administer medication prescribed by an outside physician. This physician had no privileges to practice medicine in our hospital. They continue to say that it is unable to administer medications to our patients without a valid order from a physician on our medical staff and that doing so would violate standard hospital practice and Virginia law. That said, this is the hospital responding. Our team has worked around the clock to cooperate with the patient's family and the court to identify potential viable solutions, including to make a reasonable attempt to transfer the patient's care to their preferred physician, which has since happened. Despite what has been shared online, we believe that we have navigated these complexities as swiftly as possible and have remained in compliance with standard hospital practice, including federal and state regulations throughout the matter. Well, it was another case, another case. A guy named Christopher Davies, who happened to be the son of the patient Kathleen Davies, told the newspaper in Virginia that 
Two doses of ivermectin, generally used to treat parasites, we know that, were given to the woman at 8.45 p.m. this past Monday. And that only came after that judge, James Fisher of the 20th Judicial Court of Virginia, signed an order finding the hospital in contempt of court as needlessly interposing requirements that stand in the way of the patient's desired physician administering investigational drugs as part of the Healthcare Decisions Act and the federal and state right to try acts. She, too, was terminal, according to the hospital. So her care falls under that federal case, the right to try acts, that came during the Trump administration. Furthermore, given the gravity at hand, the hospital has to pay $10,000 per day retroactive to the date of the court's injunctive order filing. This woman got up and walked out of the hospital. I mean, I, and the reason I'm going into these two things, this is a very important point for you to understand and consider. We've been conditioned through, gosh, 100 years or more of excellent medical care in pretty much any hospital in the continental United States that we take it for granted. You got a problem? Your doctor says you got to go to the hospital. You go to the hospital, you check in, they do what they're going to do, and everything goes well. You trust everybody and everything they say. That's the way we've been conditioned over time. We never thought about how the hospital is structured regarding treating patients and actually performing procedures on patients that check into their hospital. If your doctor is not affiliated with that particular hospital, your doctor's not going to be able to be the frontline person managing your care while you're in that hospital. Most Americans didn't know that. Many still don't. They don't understand that. They don't get it. I mean, it would just make common sense If your doctor is who tells you you need to go get this done, then that person would be allowed to treat you when you just do what he said to do. Go check into the hospital, and we'll get this taken care of. Not every doctor, folks, is a hospitalist. In other words, not every doctor will go to the hospital after a person, a patient gets to that point where they need to be hospitalized. My general practitioner is not a hospitalist. When he refers me to somebody, it's to a specialist who has privileges at a specific or several specific hospitals. There's a difference there. But these people ran into that roadblock Here's what I've told people on this show before. If you run into this situation, don't panic. You don't have to go to the judicial process if you don't want to. Get your attending physician, your doctor that knows everything about you and your health care, your history and everything, and get a local hospice. Transfer your loved one to that hospice under your doctor's care. And then your doctor can treat you according to, of course legally, can treat you according to the medication and the procedures that you 
and he or she agree with. And you don't have to deal with the hospital politics. You need to understand, folks, hospitals are some of the most political institutions in the planet. Their hierarchy is thick in almost every case. And way down at the bottom of the pecking order of importance, all the way down at the bottom, are the patients that come there. Yeah, they give us all the warm and fuzzy stuff that, you know, we're going to take care of you, we're going to do this. you got to understand, hospitals are big money machines to a lot of people. Let me just point out something. I'm going to tell you something you probably never really thought about. You, you, you look at the uh, medical helicopters that fly around. And whenever there's a serious problem that happens, bad car wreck or, you know, a mass shooting and patients got to be transferred quickly to a hospital, here come the helicopters, the medical helicopters. Hospitals, when this whole process began about 25 years ago, hospitals were the ones that were funding these medical helicopters. Now, let me just tell you this. It cost a fortune to own and operate a helicopter, period. Doesn't matter if it's a medical helicopter. All that does is ramp up the dollar signs because it's got to be rigged out and equipped with all of the stuff that is the medical piece. Before it even begins that process, that thing cost millions of dollars. So why does a hospital do that? Let me tell you. The reason. We would like to think, oh, you know, they're great people. They can get us there quickly. There's only a short time in the case of somebody being hurt critically. They got to get to the highest level of care that's available, and a ground ambulance would just take too long. Well, that's a justification almost every case for flying somebody. But the real reason the hospitals chomp at the bit to get in that business is this. When they drop these patients off at their hospital, the average flown patient in America across the nation, their hospital bill is $30,000 a day. Think about it. Heart attack, massive injuries from a car wreck, those are really serious things that happen and require serious hospitalization, and treatment. Most of these patients end up in either the ICU or the cardiac care unit, intensive care unit, surgeries and all that kind of stuff. So have you heard the term loss leader? It doesn't, doesn't happen. It, it still happens, but it's not so much in your face today as it used to be. Back in the 50s and 60s, when a store, a retail store, for instance, was going to run a sale on this this little bitty TV right after TVs first came out. Oh, look, we're going we're gonna to sell this one. There's a special on a $99.95. Come see us and get this $99.95 television. You go there and you find out the television doesn't have a stand. It doesn't come on standard with a remote. So, you know, you've either got to add all that stuff in or they'll show you the next step up. And you buy, most of the time, the more expensive model. Hospitals, and that's called the loss leader. You advertise, and you may, on that $99.99 that you're advertising, 
you may it may cost you $100 as a, as a retail merchant. But you get them in the store and you can switch them over to the most expensive or one of the models that's a little more expensive where your markup is bigger. The money difference there, what you're willing to lose, it's called a loss leader because you're going to make it up on this other stuff. Hospitals operate helicopters for that reason. Healthcare nationwide, in most cases it's driven by money. If it's not the first thing, if it's not the priority on their list, it's number two, simply because it's so expensive. I mean, the regulations and compliance with federal and state regulations and local regulations run the cost up out the wazoo. Just thought you needed to understand some of this process and why we're seeing these cases like that Virginia case we just shared with you and the one that happened and we reported here last week about Chicago, hospitals declining to give medication that works to patients simply because it's not in their written protocols to treat COVID-19. So the president's been marching around this week. He's been out all over the place, and every place he goes, he talks about the same things in every conversation he has. He talks about the car wreck that killed his first wife and their daughter and what it meant to them. He talks about his son that died of brain cancer. He shares that all the time like Americans have never heard the story. We know all about it because we've heard it so many times. So this week, I don't know why it was this week, going into the Christmas holidays, maybe I don't understand it, but he has gone over the top about COVID-19. Once again, he said this. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, not the vaccinated, the unvaccinated. That's the problem. Everybody talks about freedom, about not to have a shot or have a test, he said. Well, guess what? How about patriotism? How about you make sure you're vaccinated so you don't spread the disease to anybody else? What about that? What's the big deal? He was talking to an Ohio broadcaster in a separate interview. Another broadcaster in Ohio, Biden, also put out a similar statement. Quote, those who aren't vaccinated are the ones that continue to spread the diseases, he said. People should get vaxxed so you're not spreading anything else. According to the CDC, whose director is on the White House COVID team, by the way, according to them, Vaccinated people can still become infected and still have the potential to spread the virus to others, although at much lower rates than unvaccinated people. Our vaccines are working exceptionally well, Dr. Walensky, who's the director, said over the summer they continue to work well with Delta with regard to severe illness and death, but what they can't do anymore is stop transmission. Dr. Fauci, the COVID god, he wrote in a paper published Wednesday of this week that vaccination has been unable to prevent breakthrough infections, allowing subsequent transmission to other people even when the vaccine prevents severe and fatal disease. We told you the top of the show today about what's happening up at uh, 
a college up in the Northeast. 600 cases of the Omicron variant. And all 600 of them were double vaxxed. Somebody gave them those infections. Somebody did. There is so much that is still unknown. Uncertainty is rampant everywhere. Here's what makes me think that this government is totally feckless on this topic. When you know something for a fact, you present that as a fact. If you say something as a fact and you don't know for sure that it is a fact, you're actually putting those who you speak that to in a dangerous place. You're taking responsibility for the decisions that these people make based upon what you just told them was factual. And if it's not, whatever happens to them when they act on your instructions, it's on you. This government takes no accountability for anything. I mean, absolutely nothing. You want a prime example of it? Well, of course, all you have to do is listen to what Joe Biden says. But how about at a press briefing? This happened yesterday. Deputy Press Secretary, the White House briefing, with everything going on, everything bad that's happening on this president's watch where Our government is so fragmented, Congress can't get anything done. Thankfully, they're not going to pass the Build Back Better Act during this year. Hopefully, they won't pass it ever. There's still egregious legislation on the table. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Inflation through the roof. Supply chain's horrible. People can't get jobs. People can't get people to work in jobs that are open. All of the stuff going on right now. And all of this stuff that is happening at the behest of this president and those in his administration, somebody that should always give us the facts, and they do a daily White House press briefing, should be the press secretary. Turn your volume up. I want you to listen closely to this one-minute compilation, (laughs) an assessment of everything happening in this administration. He turned around a failing COVID response and a sputtering economy, and he's taking strong action to address the financial challenges that Americans care about the most. His leadership and bills, and and those bills now resulted in unprecedented economic recovery. That is the envy of the world, historic job growth, the fastest drop in unemployment in history, strengthened supply chains, and boosted competitiveness against China. We delivered because we stayed focused on what the American people care about and did the work. That's exactly what's happening here. Meanwhile, Republicans are actively seeking to hurt the pandemic response, uh, explicitly rooting for uh, inflation uh, to get worse. And so they are are blocking uh, what we're trying to do for the American people, which is bringing down the cost and doing the work on behalf of the American people. So of course, any president wants anything uh, uh, to happen soon Right. They want he wants us to get this done as soon as possible. He wants to deliver uh, the Build Back Better plan uh, for the American families as soon as possible. Uh, But we understand that it's going to take it's going to take time and we're going to but we're going to continue doing the work. 
You know what the conundrum in all of this is? Everything she just said that Joe Biden is doing is not happening. They are not bringing inflation down. And the fact that they're not bringing it down is not that the Republicans are rooting for higher inflation, as she just said. The Republicans haven't done anything to raise the inflation in the nation. There was no inflation when he took office 11 months ago. Where did the inflation come from? It came from all of the things he has initiated and through Congress on his behest has initiated this year. Inflation is a product of overspending, putting too much money out there. And to be honest with you, government spending is the reason for this inflation. It's a historical event that we can look back and see exactly when, the circumstances of when it's happened before, and look at the things that made it happen when it happened previously, and it's principally, almost solely, a product of too much government spending. And this president, he's demanding more spending. A lot more to come, folks. Back in a minute. Ladies, we ask your forgiveness. Please forgive our immaturity, our outbursts of tacky compliments. Forgive our browser history. Forgive our hormones taking control of us. Forgive us for thinking an open shirt is the ultimate weapon of appeal. Forgive us for opening our beers like primates. Forgive for taking a no as a yes. For insisting on playing a guitar that doesn't exist. And please forgive us for never washing our hands. Ever. Schneider. The beer with the exact maturity of the man who's in the process. I love going all natural. It just makes me feel better. Nothing between me and my 100% all-natural, juicy, grass-fed beef. Introducing the all-natural burger, the first ever in fast food. With no antibiotics, no added hormones, and no steroids. Only at Carl's Jr. Truth. Justice. The TNN way. This is TNN, the Truth News Network. And again, Dan Newman. You know, something something just popped into my head during the break. I was thinking about the panic that is obviously uh, being pushed out by this administration to capture us, every American, in deeper fear than we already are experiencing because of everything that's happened over the last couple of years. You think about that, folks, and you think about what the Biden administration's policies and the actions that this president has taken and look at the results of what has happened in our nation. Do you understand 
He has three more years in office. No president in history, to my knowledge, has been able to do this much damage in even four years. But in nine to ten months, look what has happened on Joe Biden's watch in this nation. What's going to happen between now and November of 2024? And then, even then, after, if he should run for re-election and he loses, or if some Republican runs and wins, the election is the first week of November. That president doesn't take office until January 20th. So this president would still have 60 days. Can you imagine what Joe Biden would do in his last 60 days as president if he lost, if he ran and lost? They've been very effective at getting a bunch of egregious, horrible things put in place. And they've shown what can happen when you control all three branches of the federal government. And it's pretty scary. It's pretty scary. Looking at these midterms coming up, folks, I got to be honest with you. This may be the most important election of our lifetimes. Seriously, it could be. Did you hear that yesterday a court weighed in on um, the healthcare workers' COVID-19 mandated vaccine? A federal appeals court reversed a nationwide ban on Joe Biden's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for some 17 million healthcare workers. The emergency rule of this judge will take effect in 26 states due to the ruling from a three-judge panel on the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Two federal judges last month, remember, blocked the mandate. The first ruling applied to just 10 states. The second expanded the preliminary injunction across the nation. But the appeals court said it found little justification for the second move in the opinion issued by U.S. District Judge Terry Doty, who, by the way, is a Trump nominee, and uh, he issued that finding on November 30th. Doty's order lacked a constitutional uniformity principle seen in previous cases like Texas v. United States or concerns outlined that case and others that patchwork rulings would undermine an injunction limited to certain jurisdictions. The panel that put forth the ruling were made up by Judges Leslie Southwich, a George W. Bush nominee, James Graves Jr., an Obama nominee, and Greg Costa, another Obama nominee. The mandate issued last month by the the CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, covers roughly 17 million workers. It requires facilities that get Medicare money or Medicaid funding, either one or both. It requires those facilities to force workers to get vaccinated. And there's no testing opt-out, by the way. The deadline for meeting the mandate is January 4th, but it remains blocked, partially blocked, and I'm I'm making sure we push forward because I want to give you the states where this applies to. The vaccine mandate remains blocked under Judge Doty's order in these states, Alabama, Arizona, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, 
Oklahoma, Ohio, South Carolina, West Virginia, and Utah. Those 26 states, the mandate is not in effect. It remains blocked under a separate order from U.S. District Judge Matthew Shelp, a Trump nominee in Alaska, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming. All the other states, the mandate is officially still in force. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, he informed Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, uh, Austin yesterday, Lloyd Austin, that the Pentagon's, the Department of Justice, his COVID-19 vaccine mandate will not be imposed on the National Guard in Texas. This really comes as no surprise to me. Governor Abbott has been dead set against all of these federal government egregious policies that they're pushing down and forcing states to abide by. Abbott said this, as governor of Texas, I'm the commander-in-chief of this state's militia. He's ordered Major General Tracy Norris, who's the adjutant general of the Texas National Guard, not to compel one person to get a COVID-19 vaccine, pointing to an executive order he signed earlier this year that forbids governmental entities from mandating vaccine. Under this order, it says... General Norris will not punish any guardsman in Texas for choosing not to receive the vaccine. If unvaccinated guardsmen suffer any adverse consequences within the state of Texas, they will have only President Biden and his administration to blame. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say that? Listen to it again. If unvaccinated guardsmen suffer any adverse consequences with the state of Texas, they will have only President Biden and his administration to blame. What the governor is doing there, folks, he's setting the stage and notifying everybody that's listening in. If there is ever going to be any litigation against anybody in government regarding the mandatory vaccinations, and it's proven down the road that they're stuffing these vaccines that are, are deadly impacting individuals' medical conditions or future medical problems, the state of Texas is out of it. They will only have President Biden and his administration to blame. The defense secretary has threatened to cut off funding. Excuse me, Austin, Austin, Texas, has threatened to, no, I'm sorry, I was right the first time. Secretary Austin has threatened to cut off funding for National Guard members who don't get vaccinated. Military officials have indicated they're going to move to oust members in the Guard who don't get the jab or some approved exemption by mandate deadlines, which vary by force and which they don't abide by. They don't accept them in large. Abbott promised to use every legal tool to me as governor in defense of Texas members of the Guard if and when They face repercussions. So let's get away from the uh, specific COVID stuff. I don't like having to do this every day, but there's new stuff that comes out every day, and there's new fear-mongering going on every day by this administration. I just want to make sure everybody in our flock here at Truth News Network don't get caught up with the fear and the uncertainty of not knowing. 
Another important part of this, but not dealing with the actual treatment of patients, Senator Ron Johnson, he's a Republican senator from Wisconsin, he wrote letters this week, and in the letters he asked for records from two prominent medical journalists regarding studies that they they put out in the marketplace, but then they pulled them back. They retracted them during the last year. One of those studies claimed that hydroxychloroquine was linked to an increased risk of mortality among COVID-19 patients. And the findings of that study were widely circulated. And you know why. Remember, Donald Trump's the one that brought hydroxychloroquine into the conversation in his White House COVID task force meetings last year. But that story that reported that study was retracted by The Lancet, the go-to medical journal, in June of 2020, about two weeks after it was published. So researchers at Surgisphere, which is a Chicago-based company that employed one of the researchers who worked on the study, they refused to share the data set allegedly containing the records that show that hydroxychloroquine will increase mortality among some COVID patients. They refused to give up the information. The other study was published in May last year by the New England Journal of Medicine, the other big credible medical journal. Researchers said they found that taking certain blood pressure drugs did not appear to increase the risk of death among those with COVID-19. That study was also retracted about a month later. Senator Johnson noted that Dr. Eric Rubin, who was editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, said after the study was retracted that it shouldn't have been published, while Dr. Richard Horton, who holds the same position at The Lancet, said the paper his journal published was fake. Although this fraudulent study was ultimately retracted, it is concerning and shameful that in the midst of a pandemic, The Lancet published such a misleading paper on a potential early treatment for COVID-19. And he sent a similar letter to Rubin at the New England Journal of Medicine. Here's Here's the thing that is really dangerous about this. These are the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine. Those are the two most prominent periodicals that come out that every healthcare professional in the nation reads and listens to and makes decisions based on the studies that are published in these two journals, these two magazines. And so when somebody puts out something and one of these two actually makes a choice to publish them, that gives them credence. That gives them credibility. It's just like we're told every day. Follow the science. Listen to the scientist. And then we do that, and we find out almost daily, at least a couple of times every week, we find out what the scientist told us isn't true. Everything that has gone south in this nation, in large part, listen to what I'm about to tell you. The egregious ramp-up of criminality, of law-breaking, snatches and grabs, 
people getting involved in horrible situations one-on-one. It's happening more now than ever before. And I think the driving factor that is making it happen, it's got to be the number one factor, is because people are just scared to death in their everyday lives. They're seeing everyday lives that they've built and established. Many people have done that through decades. They've been comfortable. They've been living in a lifestyle that they enjoy, that they and their family members have worked together to put together their jobs, their employment. All of that has been challenged and is being challenged and attacked every single day by these so-called experts. How in the heck does Joe Biden think that he is qualified to sit before the American people and warn us that there are going to be a record number of deaths from COVID-19, the new Omicron variant between now and January, that we're going to have more cases of positive infections in the next two weeks than we've ever had. He's anything but a medical expert. But because he's got the title, he feels like he's enlightened, he's endowed, and he must be listened to. Everybody needs to listen to what he says. Is it because it's all truth? Is it because it's documented, it's verified, it's laboratory tested? None of that. None of that weighs in onto anything this president tells us. It's all for political narrative. And folks, that whole mentality is responsible for putting us, almost entirely responsible for putting us in this situation that we find ourselves in. People are scared to death. You can't even think comfortably, especially if you live in a big city. It's not safe to even go around. And not just not go around at night, but even during the day, it's unsafe. Everything that has been a a stable foundation, part of a stable, consistent life, everything's challenged now. Every single thing. And those in Washington are just finding new ways to pile on those very things. This January 6th committee, it's another example of this kind of stuff happening. Our favorite go-to clown, (laughs) Representative Adam Schiff from California, he's once again proven that he is a ball-faced liar and he is trying to get things done for political partisanship purposes only and he's trying to do it through lies and has been caught and he's he's been busted in lies. What are we talking about? Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's chief of staff. This committee's they've subpoenaed him. They want him to violate executive privilege and reveal all of his communications with the president of the United States while Donald Trump was in office. And they released emails between Fox announcers and Mark Meadows. We found out yesterday, Adam Schiff is a fraud. Not just political, not just lifestyle, but always relevant. Real truth, real news, TNN, the Truth News Network. 
Long live the courageous. The tenacious. The ones who push forward and give back. Long live the greater good. The helping hand. Those who fall and get back up. And long live the truck with the strength to overcome. The will to outwork. And the commitment to outlast them all. Ram, proven to last. Lowe's knows you're a craftsman guy. You have a lot of tools. Tools for everything you've done around the house. But there's the moment you realize your new project means new tools. When tool guys need new tools, they start with Lowe's. The new home of craftsmen. Senator, no, he's not a senator. He would love to be one. Representative from California, Adam Schiff, serves on that uh, joint committee. I guess joint committee. It's not really joint. There are two um, rhino Republicans that were picked by Nancy Pelosi to serve on it. But it's supposed to be looking into what happened January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Well, the committee acknowledged yesterday that it doctored a text message between Mark Meadows and Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio excluding content about how they wanted former Vice President Mike Pence to handle electoral votes during the joint session of Congress earlier this year. On Monday, Schiff, the head of the House Intelligence Committee, showed a graphic during that hearing on newly obtained communications between Meadows and others and included Congressman Jordan. The graphic was displayed as the January 6th panel was discussing whether to hold Meadows in contempt of Congress for refusing to hand over information related to the probe. The graphic included the title, Lawmaker Text to Meadows. The message was presented exactly as this. Quote, on January 6, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as President of the Senate, should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all. You can see why this is so critical to ask Mr. Meadows about. About a lawmaker suggesting that the former vice president simply throw out votes that he unilaterally deems unconstitutional in order to overturn a presidential election and subvert the will of the American people. This is shift that's talking. However, the message was actually a direct quote from former Department of Defense Inspector General Joseph Schmitz. The text included an attachment of Schmitz's determination that Pence could object to electoral votes from states. It's happened before, folks, in our history. The text was also edited to cut off the rest of the sentence 
which stated, quote, in accordance with guidance from founding father Alexander Hamilton and judicial precedents. A spokesman for the House panel confirmed that the message was edited. The Select Committee on Monday created and provided Representative Schiff a graphic to use during the business meeting, quoting from a text message from a lawmaker to Mr. Meadows. In the graphic, this is an email from a spokesman for this committee, in the graphic, the period at the end of that sentence was added inadvertently, the spokesman added, without elaborating on how the error was introduced. The select committee is responsible for and regrets the error. Hmm. Expect a lot more of this. Schiff and the contemptible January 6th committee will twist and smear the narrative every chance they get. The very premise of this existence of this committee is a farce. They did it under the guise of they wanted to look in and find out all of the people that were involved and responsible for this insurrection that happened on January 6th. They don't have investigative access to the infrastructure that's needed to conduct these kind of investigations, but the FBI does. Before this committee was even convened, the FBI had already arrested 600 people that were there that day. 600. Many of them had already been adjudicated in court cut deals, been charged in cut deals. The FBI has the infrastructure. That's what the FBI does. This whole thing is a charade and it's attack on one person, Donald Trump. They are doing everything they can do, are these Democrats and others that aren't on this committee, to try to make certain that Donald Trump cannot run for federal office again. And of course, if he's convicted of a felon, he can't do that. If he is a felon, he can't do that. If he's committed a felony, he can't do that. And it's worth it to them, Adam Schiff and others on that committee, It's worth it to them to bend the truth a little bit if it feeds their justice, what they call justice. That's to keep Donald Trump out of office. It's just more insanity coming from Congress. Novel idea. Wouldn't it be cool if they just start working for the American people? Start dealing with the stuff that are really major things, things that not only they can impact, but they need to impact. We've got some real big news on the supply chain issues. We want to get to that, but I want to go back to what we introduced at the very beginning of the show when I told you we were going to hear from several different uh, people that were before Senate committees over the last few days. Um and hear what they had to say when they were confronted by members in the Senate. My good buddy, somebody I have a lot of respect for, our own state senator, John Kennedy, here in Louisiana, he is is always listened to because he's a very wise guy, and he talks like Mark Twain wrote back when um, Mark Twain was giving us all of his great stories 
So Kennedy, in a committee hearing with Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, talking about inflation, and it's interesting. I want you to listen to this back and forth between Powell and Kennedy. This is the consummate expert on everything to do with finance for the United States, is Jerome Powell. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I want to start with you. I, I, uh, I realize that uh, no one is clairvoyant, but um, <clears throat> I think it's fair to say that the, uh, the experts who have been advising you about the future rate of inflation have uh, pretty much the same credibility those as those uh, late-night psychic hotlines you see on TV. Um, is the Fed considering increasing the pace of its tapering? We, we've got to get control of inflation. It's, it's ravaging our people. So I think what we missed about inflation was the so – we didn't predict the, uh, the supply-side problems. And those are highly unusual and very difficult, very nonlinear, uh, and it's, it's really hard to predict those things. But that's really what we missed, and that's why all of the professional forecasters had much lower inflation projections. You ask about the taper, and uh, so, yes, um, as I mentioned earlier, when – since the last meeting, we've seen um, – basically elevated inv- inflation pressures. We've seen very strong labor market data without any improvement in labor supply. Uh, and we've seen strong spending data, too. So, And remembering that every dollar of asset purchases does increase accommodation, um, we now look at an economy that's very strong and inflationary pressures that are high. And I, it, that, that, that means it's appropriate, I think, for us to discuss at our next meeting, which is in a couple weeks, uh, whether it will be appropriate to wrap up our, our purchases a few months earlier, as I mentioned. All right. Um, Thank you. And, Thank you. But in those two weeks, we're going to get more data and we're going to learn more about the new variant. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. That's the expert on everything to do with our money, folks. He basically, in a nice, kind way, was called on the, par- the, the carpet by Senator Kennedy and asking him, When are you guys going to stop this madness? Do you understand how it works? What the Federal Reserve does when they weigh in, when they inject capital into our system in the United States, how they do that. They don't write a check to the federal government. Here's what they do. They print bonds, U.S. bonds, Treasury bonds. Those are printed at the Federal Reserve. And they, quote, unquote, sell those to the U.S. Treasury. And there's no money that changes hands because, quite honest, we can't buy them. But then the Treasury auctions those bonds off. And mostly it's it's big investment banks that buy them. But a lot of insurance companies that hold investments of their stockholders, money market funds that are investment funds, all of them buy these these bonds because they've always been considered to be very conservative and very safe investment products. And of course, the Treasury then takes that money and puts it in the Treasury's bank account and spends it on 
all the things that we're spending money on. That's the way we borrow money. Anybody that buys those bonds, and it's not just these investment banks, insurance companies, and uh, investment funds that do it. A lot of individuals buy them. A lot of them. And a lot of foreign countries buy those bonds. So when all of this money is just thrown into the marketplace, it screws up the entire financial process that is built and established and operates over a period of time. And everybody gets accustomed to it. And everybody knows this is how you do it. Well, spending a lot of money, it sends off the bells of inflation. They all begin to ring across our economy. And then prices start going up. Because dollars become less valuable when many, many more dollars are just thrown into the marketplace. They're not produced in the marketplace, which drives everything to stay level. Prices stay level. Inflation stays level. But when there's more money in the marketplace than there is a way to justify all this extra money, it devalues the current dollar. And I, and I hope you get that. It's a principle we need to understand. That's what drives interest rates up because the Federal Reserve, who sets the rates, they've got to watch the all this inflation, and the only way to bring it down is to get people to stop borrowing and spending money. It's a vicious circle. It's a vicious cycle. But this guy, Jerome Powell, he is the guru. He is Anthony Fauci's COVID-19 God counterpart in the United States financial operations. And even he is miffed and has no real explanation for what's going on. Let me give you an example. Our supply chain issues. We've heard all kinds of examples and explanations of what's going on and the problem we have with our supply issues and everything's always that that's bad that happens in the nation today. Politicians blame it on our pandemic. Our pandemic did this. Well, who created the pandemic? We didn't have to do all the lockdowns that we did. We didn't have to shut down the United States. We didn't have to destroy businesses permanently. We didn't have to put millions of people on unemployment. They had to get on it because they didn't have jobs because politicians nationwide shut us down, took emergency actions. Now, these same people don't want to take accountability for what they did, so what did they do? They start finger-pointing. You heard the deputy press secretary. She gave all of these accolades telling us about Joe Biden's accomplishments. It's all fluff. None of it was truthful. None of it happened. And then when it was mentioned and she addressed What about this big inflation thing? She blamed it on Republicans, saying that Republicans are trying to raise inflation rates. They don't want to support Joe Biden's plans to reduce it. You cannot reduce inflation by spending more of the taxpayers' money that you didn't get from the taxpayers, yet you borrowed it from the Federal Reserve. And it'll have to be paid back, and that's what make inflation go through the roof. Joe Biden, last week, he took credit for kicking the problem with our supply chain 
kicking it to the curb by what he had done. Remember he said our supply chains, those the issues we had with all those ships in the harbors off the California coast from those two shipping ports, we took care of it. It's been reduced by 41%. Now what he was intimating and wanting everybody to think when he said that was some of something he did caused that to happen. Then we find out the reason it happened was the ports quit getting ships because of things going on in Southeast Asia, primarily where all of our stuff comes from, our goods from um, Southeast Asian countries, including China, they weren't coming anymore because of lockdowns and problems with the COVID-19 stuff over there. Well, it started picking up again. The Port of Los Angeles now is struggling to accommodate the demand of American consumers as record imports flow into the country while a hundred ship queue remains at sea waiting to get in to unload. It's just a vicious cycle. It's the same things that happened before. No end in sight to the traffic congestion there. Officials at the port, Los Angeles, it's the number one port in the nation, are fighting an uphill battle to keep the shelves across our country stocked with goods. The sustained and unmatched demands by the American consumers pushing our import numbers to new levels. That's from Gene Soraka, L.A. Ports Executive Director. Even though the Biden administration proposed a 24-hour shift at the ports to tackle our heavy inflow, only one in seven container terminals have been able to operate at that schedule due to conflicts with warehousing and truck transportation. How do you fix this problem? What's the permanent fix for it? Well, the process of distributing all of the goods that come into these ports, not just there in California, but around the nation. You manage the process. You set up a plan. And this president has never set up a plan in a company, never built anything, never worked as a manager, doesn't understand the process, and I'm not diminishing him for that because he's been in politics, and that's not a necessary element in politics. But how you do it is you identify the problems, you identify the solutions, the potential solutions, you decide what it's going to take to get there, and then you go back and reconstruct the old process, the changes that have to be made within that process to address the problems. And every problem has an answer. Every problem has an answer. You just got to find the answer. How do you think if Joe Biden wasn't the president, if Donald Trump was, do you think we'd have the same kind of problem going on regarding our supply chain issues? You and I both know it wouldn't be. It didn't happen during the Trump administration, and we had a pandemic, a lockdown. We did. It was in full swing and had been for months. But all of a sudden, 30 days after this president takes office and we start hearing a trickle of information about stuff is getting stopped at the ports and we can't get it to the American people. So what did big 
icons in big business. What did they do when all this happened? Did you hear what Walmart did? When these ships couldn't get unloaded, they couldn't get into port to get unloaded, to get on rail cars and trucks and transported to Walmarts around the nation, around North America. Walmart went directly to the ports. They went into the port of Houston with a $250 million check and laid it on the table of the port director and said, this is yours if you will guarantee us that every Walmart ship that comes into this port, regardless of how many it is and when they come, is moved to the front of the line to unload. And then Walmart has its own massive fleet of trucks Do you think that just happened overnight? Somebody just said, hey, what about this? No. It happened because of management. This administration has no concept of good management. Joe Biden never even thought about our supply chain issues until months after he was in the the office and just all of a sudden when it came up, they went, oh my gosh, what do we do? So we got to start talking. So they began to blame everybody else. That's the way they're doing everything, and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work, folks. It doesn't get things done, and we're back into cycle number two. And you know why we're in cycle number two now? Same issues. Exact same issues. The process hasn't been fixed. And, yeah, there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of moving people, That's a typical thing that you deal with in business, not necessarily in government. Let's change, let's just change gears here. You remember the first person that was indicted in the John Durham investigation into the sources of the fake Russia collusion probe? You remember it was an it was an attorney, Kevin Kleinsmith is his name. He's a former senior FBI lawyer and he was placed on probation because he pled guilty at changing the application that was presented to the FISA court. It was it was lied. It was incorrect. It was presented to the FISA court and the FISA court did the first thing that began that Russia collusion, that fake Russia collusion investigation. They authorized surveillance of Trump Tower. Well, Klein Smith pled guilty to that. And in his plea deal, of course, if you're an attorney and you commit a felony, you lose your law license, your ability to practice law. Well, guess what happened? He's been returned to good standing as a member of the Washington, D.C. Bar Association. In August of last year, he pled guilty to doctoring an email that was then used to justify that surveillance warrant that targeted former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. As a result, Klein Smith was sentenced in January to 12 months probation, though the D.C. Bar did not seek his disbarment. They just basically put his practice on hold. In June of 2017, 
Kleinsmith changed the wording in a CIA email to state that Page, Carter Page, was not a source for the spy agency when in fact Kleinsmith and the FBI had been informed on multiple occasions that Page had been a CIA asset for years. Had the FISA court understood that, the information would have severely undermined the FBI's argument for approval of monitoring Carter Page on suspicions of him acting as a Russian agent. Five months after Kleinsmith pled guilty, the D.C. bar temporarily suspended his license pending a review and a hearing. Typically, the bar automatically suspends the law license of any attorney who pleads guilty to a felony. In September, the decision was made to let him off suspension with time served and returned his status to active member in good standing. Kleinsmith, until last summer when this all happened, he volunteered at the D.C.-based nonprofit Street Sense Media. That's an organization that uses a range of creative platforms to spotlight solutions to homelessness and empower people in need. Kleinsmith had been sentenced to 400 hours of community service volunteer work. The bar, however, did not check with his probation officer to make sure he had completed the requirement. Well, the investigation indicates that officials with the D.C. Bar did not check with the FBI's inspection division to figure out whether Kleinsmith was involved in any other surveillance abuses beyond the one used against Carter Page. So while the D.C. Bar has consistently behaved questionably with regard to Kleinsmith's case, the Michigan Bar, of which he is also a member, They suspended him automatically on the day he pled guilty. The State Bar's Association Attorney Discipline Board also suspended him for two years, fined him a thousand bucks. They found that Kleinsmith's actions were contrary to justice, ethics, honesty, or good morals, violated the standards or rules of professional conduct adopted by the Supreme Court, and violated a criminal law of the United States of America. And the reason I mentioned Michigan, this is just so you can compare. This is Michigan. And then look what the D.C. bar did. They, they didn't even slap him on the hand. They just waited till the sun set a few times and just said, hey, you're a good guy. You're one of us. Come on back and go back to work. Politicization of everything. Everything is political. Let's go back. Let's go back to the to the U.S. Congress. Let's go back to the Senate. A, a judicial nominee. And uh, listen to the, th- this will tell you. Now, this is a nominee of Joe Biden. And let me tell you how all these judicial nominees, in fact, anybody that comes before the Senate to be confirmed for a position in any administration, they're coached as to how to proceed. And one of the most irritating things to me is you can hear every nominee when they're asked any question by any senator, the first words they always say is, Senator, thank you for that question. Now, most of the time you and I both know, especially if it's a Democrat nominee sitting before the Senate 
Judiciary Committee and they're being questioned by a Republican senator, they don't want to say, thank you for asking my question. They want to get in your face, but they can't because they want a job and you hold their ability to get that job in your own hands. But listen to the back and forth between Hawley and this nominee and see how insane this process of confirmation has become. Uh, I have to say I'm confused by your exchange just a moment ago with Senator Cruz on the death penalty. So you're, you're in favor of the death penalty personally? I can't indicate a view as a sitting judge and a nominee to the Second Circuit. What I can indicate um, is that if I have a death case as a, either a sitting district judge or should I be confirmed to the Second Circuit, I will fully and completely apply the relevant statutory law. Wait, but you have indicated a view in the past. That's why I'm confused by what you just said to, to Senator Cruz. You've, you've filed numerous amicus briefs. You've written a chapter in a book, the story of Roper versus Simmons, where you praise the Supreme Court's decision there on the death penalty, which forbade the death penalty for crimes that were committed uh, but when the uh, when the criminal was under the age of 18. So I, I'm just trying to figure out, have you changed your view, or, or what, what, what's the story here? You, you used to be opposed to the death penalty, and now you're for it, or now you don't want to talk about it, or what, what, what's the deal? The um, articles that you're writing, I wrote in the context as uh, academic or uh, litigation as an advocate, um, as a judge, 10 years I've been on the bench. As I've said, I have had death eligible cases. I'm fully and completely prepared to implement and apply. I, I understand all of that, Judge. I, I got that. I heard that. But but I'm, I'm, asking, I'm trying to figure out here what your view is on the death penalty. You've talked about the death penalty. You've written about it. You've advocated that. That doesn't magically disappear when you get nominated for the Second Circuit. And I think it's pretty fair game to talk about your past writings and statements and positions you've taken. So I was what, what caught my attention was you wouldn't say to Senator Cruz, you made it sound as if you're for the death penalty. I'm trying to figure out if you've changed your position or if you're just not willing to talk about your past articles. I mean, what what? so what, let me just come back to it. Are you still against the death penalty? Senator, uh, my writings in the past or advocacy on behalf of clients made legal arguments I actually don't think I've ever indicated in writing that the death penalty was unconstitutional uh, or the like. I made specific legal arguments, uh, and in the case of the chapter on Roper, I analyzed the Supreme Court's decision in that case. Um, but what I can tell you, Senator, is in this area, um, as a sitting judge, I have had death-eligible cases. Uh, I am fully prepared to implement congressional law uh, uh, consistent with the death penalty. Let me ask you this. In your book chapter on Roper versus Simmons, you, you praise the fact that the Supreme Court relied on international law to uh, cut back on the application of the death penalty. Do you think judges should rely on international law in other areas as well? Is it fair if they're going to rely on the death penalty context? Is it fair to look to international law in other areas of the law? As a judge um, interpreting and implementing U.S. law, the U.S. Constitution, U.S. Congressional Statutory provisions, you look to U.S. law, not foreign or international law. Well, you're the one who praised looking to international law. So have you changed your view on that also? I wrote an article back before I was a judge as an academic about looking at what the Supreme Court was doing in invoking international and foreign law. Um, uh, and I analyzed it in that context as a... As a, um, I, don't, I don't understand how the truth or falsity of these things changes based on where you sit. Either it's true or it's not true. 
either you praised it or you didn't praise it. It, it doesn't change because you have a it doesn't change because now you want a new job. With all due respect, Judge, you praised the application of international law. You particularly singled out the fact that a Chinese delegation was present in the Supreme Court chamber the day that Roper versus Simmons was handed down. You spent an entire article praising the court's use of international law. So please don't suggest to me now that you didn't do that or that somehow being a judge now and wanting a spot on the Second Circuit makes that irrelevant. Frankly, I think it's a little irritating that you're fencing with me this way. So let me ask you this. If, if, the, if the Supreme Court's going to look to international law in the death penalty context, why not in the abortion context? Do you think it's relevant that we are one of only seven nations that allows abortion past the stage of uh, fetal pain, for instance? Do you think that's something that courts should consider? Senator, I would consider what the Supreme Court and the Second Circuit says is relevant to those considerations. Um, and I can, I think if you look at my record over 10 years as a sitting judge, the thousands of cases I've decided, uh, I've looked to American law in interpreting the American Constitution. So let me ask you one final set of questions here in the brief time I've got remaining. Let's talk about one of these cases, these COVID cases, United States versus Tucker. This is where you reduce the sentence of a person that you said had committed a very serious crime that's your word, his criminal record was 30 years long. The most recent reason he was in prison was he had been a gunman, uh, used a, 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 a gun in a violent crime and a planned robbery. You said that it was important to reduce his sentence because of the extraordinary and unprecedented threat posed by COVID. Now, he'd already had COVID and recovered. He was also fully vaccinated. You didn't release him, however, but you reduced his sentence. I'm curious about that. Why would you not, if, if it was an extraordinary threat, COVID was, despite the fact that he'd had COVID, recovered, and was vaccinated, why, why would you just reduce his sentence? Why wouldn't you release him? I, walk me through that logic. Sure. Um, I denied the request for release, uh, in part for the factors that you've indicated. Under the relevant statutory provision, you do have to go through and engage in the analysis under the 18 U.S.C. Section 3553A factors. I did that taking into account the arguments made by both sides, the record that was in front of me, and concluded uh, that a one-year sentence reduction was what was appropriate. Uh, I've sentenced over 270 people in my decade on the bench. Uh, I've imposed substantial sentences, and I've done that um, taking into account the factors that Congress has indicated I'm required to take in, into account in exercising that judgment. It's unbelievable. And this is not just a Democrat nominee practice, folks. It works the same way. Why even have a confirmation hearing? Why even have that set up? If the people that come before these committees in which they're supposed to determine if this person sitting before them is qualified to be a judge at any level, at the federal level, district judge or appellate judge. And they won't answer truthfully the questions that are asked. And their fallback is, well, I'm a sitting judge, as you heard her say, and I really can't comment on a case or anything about a case that hasn't come up I, I, I can't even talk about a potential situation that comes up because then I could be held to that before I see the actual evidence of a specific case. Everybody sitting in that hearing room knows that fact. But as you just you heard John Kennedy earlier talking to that nominee, you just heard Josh Hawley talking to this judge nominee. 
And these people have made public their personal opinions about specific parts of the law. And he just was asking her, do you still feel the same way you did when you said this or when you wrote this or took this action on this case? And they refuse to answer because they know they're talking to a conservative senator and they don't want to give the truth to this conservative senator because what he's going to do is use it as a purpose, a reason, a justification for not voting for this person when it comes down to the final vote to either confirm or not confirm a nominee to any position. It just seems like under this president, we have watched these kind of hearings happen more and more and more where people have been coached, all nominees are, but these people have been coached, don't even give your opinion about anything, especially not about the death penalty or about abortion. Because if you do, it's going to ring the bell and there's a chance you won't get confirmed. Rather than, novel idea, just answer these questions, every one of them. Answer them truthfully. In other words, you don't want to live with your past decisions you've made. Don't let them know that. (laughs) That you don't want to take responsibility for the past choices that you've made. Just deflect. Deflect. It's politics, folks. It's not law. It's not law. We're going to get to probably the most salient conversation I've heard by anybody in Congress from Ted Cruz. He's talking to a group of people that are appearing to testify about voter ID laws. That's coming up in our final half hour. We're going to get there. (laughs) Back in a minute. As a retired teacher, I look for ways to save money for the things I love, like traveling the world. Medicare plans change each year. Fortunately, my HealthMart pharmacist helped me understand my insurance, saving me money on prescriptions. And they can help you, too. My pharmacist cares about my health and the things I love, whatever that might be. HealthMart, caring for you and about you. Visit HealthMart.com for the locally owned pharmacy near you. Could switching to GEICO really save you 15% or more on car insurance? Did the little piggy cry wee, wee, wee all the way home? home. Oh, cool. Thanks, Mrs. A. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Whether holding down the fort or bouncing back to school, childhood is always in session. So keep feeding us right with sun-made snacks, just like when you were a kid. Remember their naturally sweet raisins? Yup, still delicious. And so are Sunmate's other snacks, like creamy yogurt-covered raisins, sour raisin snacks that taste like sour candy with no added sugar, and Sunmate's new s'mores and birthday cake bites. All delicious, all made with whole fruit. Sunmade snacks. 
Join a community of online learning and find your bright future at the American Women's College of Bay Path University. Getting your college education doesn't necessarily make it so you have different self-worth or you mean more. There's so many different roads you can take. But if you have the feeling that you want it, go get it. The American Women's College is supportive and kind, and what you've created has changed lives, and I'm so grateful that I can say I've been part of it. Enrolling now for September and November at baypath.edu slash future. This is the truth your mama warned you about. TNN, the Truth News Network. Truthnewsnet.org. And Dan Newman. Folks, the announcements are piling up. Democrats in the House of Representatives, they're running for the exits. California Democrat Representative Alan Lowenthal on Thursday became the 20th Democrat to say they're not going to run for re-election at the end of this current term. Lowenthal said this, explaining his reasoning, it's time to pass the baton as his journey comes to an end. However, his announcement is only the latest, as older or more vulnerable Democrats are leaving their current seats to retire, including, this is shocking, three committee chairs, or seek a different office, either on the local or state level. Lowenthal cast more doubt on the Democrats' chances of keeping the House majority in the midterms in 2022. That's four times the number of seats the Republicans must flip to be able to take back the majority, the 20 that they have. Interesting. Democrats have a full-blown retirement crisis on their hands because voters are rejecting their agenda of higher prices, higher crime, and open borders. This gives the GOP a big chance to gain more seats as strong Republican candidates are already running in the majority, if not all, of those 20 districts. The remaining vulnerable Democrats will also have to face tough re-election battles across the country and tough competitors. In most of these cases, they may have to campaign in new areas that their district did not include before the redistricting maps are being approved now. Remember, every 10 years, based on the census, congressional districts are changed. It's interesting how that plays into politics. And one thing is pretty certain, folks, the face of the Democrat Party, as far as their control in the U.S. Congress, is going to change at the midterms. I don't think anybody thinks there's any way Democrats can keep the House. The Senate, I think it may be still up for grabs, but I think there are are three or four changes that are inevitable, and I think there's a good possibility the GOP will have a shot at winning control of both of those parties. Joe Biden gets his hands tied. How do you think his last two years in this first term as president are going to look like if he can't get Congress to approve these stupid spending bills? We'll just have to wait and see. Did you hear about former President Trump? He's not in politics. Well, he is, but he's really not formally. He's not in an elected position. But he is doing a lot of work. He's moving forward. He is implementing in his just recently built since he left office extensive media network 
He's announced a partnership of his social network, Truth. They're going to partner with Rumble, the Canadian streaming and video hosting platform that does not discriminate against political ideology. Did you even know that Trump has a media company? It's it's a monster media company already. And they're doing a social media platform and they're going to partner with Rumble. This is a big deal, folks. As part of our mission, the Trump Organization continues to align with service uh, providers who don't discriminate against political ideology. Therefore, I have selected the Rumble Cloud to serve as a critical backbone for our media infrastructure. This is a release by Donald Trump. He added, our company has already launched Truth Social on the Rumble Cloud for invited guests only, and the initial beta launch has been excellent. America is ready for Truth Social and the end to cancel culture. He explained they were already broadcasting from Rumble Cloud for guest onlys, and the initial beta launch has been terrific. Also, the two companies plan to offer infrastructure and video delivery services to subscribers, according to this press release. For his part, the Rumble CEO and founder, Chris Pavlosky, have you heard anything about him? He's an amazing young man. He enthusiastically noted the partnership would allow users immunity from the cancellation culture, which has increased in the media over the past few years. He said, we continue to build the infrastructure to deliver a free, open, and neutral internet. He added that Rumble was designed to be immune to cancel culture. We're at the forefront of a movement that believes everybody benefits from access to a neutral platform that hosts diverse ideas, and opinions. This is interesting. The business linkage of these two, it immediately saw a big increase in the value of the shares of the special purpose acquisition companies through which they are publicly traded. Stock, folks, these are public companies. The great reception of Trump's media network represented a tremendous economic reward for Trump. When they started, the shares started trading at $10 a share when it began in October. It went up to $175 a share. (laughs) In this crusade launched by Trump to protect freedom of expression, which represents a culture war between liberals and conservatives, He chose Republican Representative Devin Nunes as the company's CEO and promises to kick off everything next month. Rest assured, I have not by any means given up our collective fight. I'll just be pursuing it through other means, Nunes says. I think it's very interesting. I think the two are going to make a good pair. And I, I just can't wait to watch how all this unfolds, folks. It's going to be fun just sitting back and watching the different people that end up on this media outlook that's created that has no kinds of restrictions on those who provide content. I mean, you think about it. There shouldn't be any restrictions. I know people say things, print things, broadcast things that sometimes are ugly, 
Sometimes they're nasty, and I get that. But when it comes to political ideology and people's opinions, constitutionally, we have the right to free speech. We can speak and say anything that we desire. And it's okay, according to our U.S. Constitution, it's okay if when I say something it offends you, it's just my opinion and it's my right to say it. The same care accounts for you. You can say things that you know will offend me. But that's just the way it works. You can't have partial free speech. You either have free speech or you have no free speech. There's no middle ground there. Now, I promised that we would let you hear from Senator Ted Cruz. It's a viral moment you're about to hear. He spoke to these people about um, the voting law, voter ID, and the various voter ID laws that have been sweeping around the nation, especially since the 2020 election. And everybody knows there are varying views, pro and cons, Democrat, Republican, or whatever. Most people In fact, a huge majority of Americans, even ethnic Americans, they want the right to vote to be protected, but they want it protected in part by voter ID. Listen to this back and forth in the Senate. Uh, I want to start with a question for each of the five witnesses. Uh, In your judgment, are voter ID laws racist? Professor Tolson. Thank you for that question. Um, So it depends. One thing we have to stop doing is treating all voter ID laws as the same. Okay, so your answer, I I want to move quickly, so it depends is your answer? Yes, that's my answer. Okay, so what voter ID laws are racist? Apologies, Mr. Cruz, your state of Texas, perhaps? Okay, so you think the entire state of Texas is racist. What about requiring an ID to vote is racist? Um, So I think, sir, that's pretty reductive. I'm not saying the entire state of Texas is racist. You just said my state of Texas. So you tell me your voter what about I- the Texas oh, voter absolutely. ID laws is racist. So the fact that the voter ID law was put into place to diminish the political power of Latinos uh, with racist intent and it had been found to if have racist You're asserting racist that. Intent, what's your evidence for that? Uh, the, dist- the federal district court that first resolved the constitutionality of Texas's voter ID law. Okay. So your view is voter ID laws are racist. How about you, Mr. Yang? I agree with Professor Tulsa. Voter ID laws can be racist. Okay, that's that's two. Context. Mr. Science? There are some voter ID laws that are racially discriminatory in intent. That, how about in, in practice? In intent, I, fine, you, you say there's some racist with, with a malevolent yeah. intent lurking in the back of their mind. But let's just talk about it as a practical matter. When I go to vote, they ask me for my ID. I pull out my ID, I show it to them, I vote. Is that racist? If the law that requires you to do that was motivated by racially discriminatory intent under our Constitution. Set aside intent. I'm that, asking about the effect. Yes, in effect, okay. I think that Ms. there are Reardon. discriminatory effects from a number of voter ID laws. Okay, thank I'm you, Mr. I'm going to give the witness a chance to answer the question. Go ahead, Mr. Sign. Yes, in effects, I think many voter ID laws are discriminatory okay. and in design. They are designed to have that effect. Okay, Ms. Reardon. No, sir. Mr. Van uh, Spakovsky. No, particularly because every single state that has passed an ID law has put in a provision to provide a free ID to anyone who doesn't have one. The turnout numbers show it has no effect. And I would remind everyone that the current version of the Texas voter ID law for in-person voting, the Obama administration agreed in court 
in a court filing that they were satisfied with it and that it was not discriminatory. You know, I have to say that's the wildly partisan nature of the Democrats' proposal. The record should reflect all three of the Democratic witnesses invited by the chairman maintain to this committee that voter ID laws can be, in many instances, in most instances, I think of the various ways they formulated, are racist. So let me tell you who disagrees with that. 35 states across the country disagree with that because 35 states have voter ID laws in effect. But not just 35 states. 81% of voters in America disagree with the radical views proposed by the Democrats and the Democratic witnesses. Not just 81% of Americans. 77% of black voters in America support voter ID laws. 78% of Hispanic voters in America support voter ID laws. Maldives should think about that. 81% of low-income Americans support voter ID laws. And yet, what this bill is about is putting radicals in charge of saying, if you require an ID to vote, that is racist and must be struck down. This is all about partisan power. Now, DOJ has also said, under the Biden administration, that it is not going to presume that, state acts that, uh, that a state acts lawfully if it simply returns to pre-COVID voting laws. Ms. Reardon, Mr. Van, Van Spakovsky, what does that tell you if they say after a pandemic, if you go back to the laws that existed before, DOJ is not going to assume that that's okay? Well, what does that tell you about the partisan nature of DOJ? By, um, by, the, by issuing the guidance that they did, it says to me that what they would like to do is make permanent the um, emergency procedures that were um, instituted by uh, many states through litigation by the DNC throughout the, throughout the country prior to the 2020 election. And they would like those to be permanent. And so rather than understand that they are temporary, they are going to go after states that design to go back to their original election procedures. Well, and I think they also think Democrats did well under those emergency procedures, and so putting the, keeping those emergency procedures in place will predictably benefit Democrats. You know, I would note, in addition to disagreeing with the vast majority of the American people, the Democratic witnesses and the Democrats here also agree with, disagree with the United States Supreme Court. When I was the Solicitor General of Texas, I represented a coalition of states defending Indiana's voter ID law uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court, a group of plaintiffs challenged that. It went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, by a vote of six to three, upheld Indiana's voter ID law. Not only did they dis do so, Justice John Paul Stevens, one of the lions of the left, wrote the majority opinion where he said voter ID laws protect the integrity of elections. And yet, sadly, too many Democrats today don't want to protect the integrity of elections. And I've got to say there is a view, particularly from Northeastern Democrats, that they look down on the rest of the country as a bunch of bigots and overalls, their southern cousins who are too oafish to be as enlightened as they are. And I have to say there's an incredible hypocrisy in that, in that states like Georgia and Mississippi have a higher black voter registration rate than states like Connecticut, the chairman's home state. They have higher black voter turnout rates than states like Connecticut. They have a lower gap between black and white turnout than in states like Senator Blumenthal's Connecticut. 
And in fact, states like Georgia and Mississippi, African-Americans voted a higher rate than white voters, and in Texas, they're basically equal. One of the sad realities of today's Democratic Party is they define race as follows. If you're a Democrat, you qualify. So under the Democratic view, I'm not Hispanic. Senator Padilla is. If you're a Democrat, you're an Hispanic. My, my abuelo Aruela would be very surprised to discover I wasn't Hispanic. But that's how Democrat views it. That's how the radicals in the civil rights division view it. And I will point out as an example, this committee, one new federal district judge in the state of Texas, Jason Pulliam, is an African-American judge nominated by President Trump, sat at this table, presented superbly. The Democrats had no criticism, and every single Democrat on this committee voted against him. Why? Because they perceived him as a black Republican. He didn't qualify as a black man. The Democrats were voting against Judge Pulliam. Do you have one basis to vote against him? Anything you disagree with, none of them had any single answer at all. This hearing's about one thing. It's about power, and it's about ensuring Democrats stay in power. That's cynical, and it's at the expense of democracy and the right of voters to express their will through free and fair elections. I know, I know, that was a seven-minute segment, but I think it's critical to understand, and I think you just heard both sides of the political spectrum, and it's not just about this one issue. It's not a singular issue at all. Voter ID law. Ask yourself this question. Why would anybody be against assuring that everybody that casts a vote in every election is legally authorized to cast that vote. What's wrong with that? How could that possibly be racist? You heard the numbers there that Senator Cruz tossed out. 81% of the American people. Over 70% of African American minority voters who they're the ones that have been used as the foil for decades for those who have pushed back against voter ID laws. It's racist. It's racist. There is nothing racist about a voter ID card. We played here on our show several months ago a series of short interview responses for somebody that went out on the streets in New York City and talked to African-American people just walking down the street. Every person that was talked to that was asked, is having a voter ID, is it racist? They laughed at it. They got mad about it. It's an insult to them. One young woman said, it's an insult to African-Americans to intimate that it's racist to require a voter ID law. She said, I can't drive without having an ID. I can't get a license without proving who I am and that I'm authorized to be able to drive in this city and this state. You can't rent a car. Oh, and by the way, you can't go to any sanctioned Democrat Party meeting of any kind from the top the DNC on down, without having an ID. It's only racist. (laughs) If it has to do with voting laws, there's only one reason, one reason only, why anybody will and does reject the requirement of having voter ID when somebody casts a vote is to be able to have people vote illegally. If there's any other reason, 
any other justified reason, any other proven, any other logical reason for that, feel free to let me know. Dan at truthnewsnet.org. Dan at truthnewsnet.org. God, this day has flown by. Last day before Christmas week. Are you going to be out and about doing your thing all this weekend and next week? Have you got Christmas done? Let me just tell you this. While you're out doing your stuff, while you're buying gifts, and while you're spending time with people, every day, why don't you make a commitment? Do this. Find at least one person. Look for somebody. You're going to be out and about. It even makes it easier to find somebody. But just look at somebody that you may not know. Maybe you know who they are, but you really don't know them. And talk to them for just a minute. Talk about Christmas. If you don't have anything else to talk about, talk about Christmas. Talk about what it really means. And if the opportunity comes up in that conversation, ask them how they're doing. Wish them well. Let them talk to you. Doctors tell us one of the most egregious things that has come out of this COVID-19 pandemic and all the fear and all the uncertainty and the top-down rulings that have come out have scared Americans, and most Americans now are withdrawing. Many, not most, but many are withdrawing into themselves and finding themselves dealing with some major psychological issues. Have a conversation. Wish somebody well. Smile at them. If you know somebody and they're in a tough place, maybe mentally, maybe economically, take them to lunch. Take a few minutes and do something for other people this week that you normally don't do. And I'm not diminishing anybody or anything. I'm not doing that. It's to encourage you to encourage other people. That's what this season is all about, folks. You guys have a great weekend. Don't forget our bullet point offering tomorrow morning. Headlines of the biggest stories of the week. It's our most read story at truthnewsnet.org. We'll get back together on Monday. Do it again. Christmas week. I can't wait. Have a great weekend. We'll see you then.